You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric, and if it's your first time listening to or watching the podcast, then please remember to subscribe. It's easy to do. You can hit one of those buttons right there in your podcast player or right there below the video in YouTube. If you are enjoying the podcast as we go along, then please head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave the podcast a five-star review because that helps us grow the podcast, puts us right there in Apple's algorithm so more and more people can find the podcast and get this valuable information that we are putting out each and every episode. And if you are someone who is interested in finding the best quality supplements and nootropic products on the market today, then head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download a copy of my free supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient on how to find the best quality supplements and nootropic products on the market today because as my guest probably knows, there is a lot of junk being sold today in the supplement industry. The supplement industry is a $100 billion industry and most of it is trash because a lot of these companies, they cut corners, they use cheap ingredients, they use fillers, excipients, preservatives, and all of that stuff diminishes the quality of the product you're taking. So if you're someone who wants to only get the best quality stuff out there being sold on the market today. I will walk you through that with my free supplement buying guide. You can get that for free over at holisticnootropics.com. Okay, let's jump into today's podcast with our guest, Ashok Gupta. Ashok Gupta is a speaker, filmmaker, and health practitioner, and the founder of the Gupta Program, a neuroplasticity brain retraining program for chronic immune conditions, such as long COVID and myoencephalopathy and chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, Ashok created the Coronavirus Challenge, a free, I should say, Ashok also has created the Coronavirus Challenge, a free 10-day program to boost your immune system against COVID-19 and his latest venture called iRise. You can get that at www.iriseapp.com is a one-stop shop for all your personal transformation, transformation needs with over 600 courses, classes, and live events across 3,500 videos. Sounds like a good deal. Ashok, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Yes, thank you for inviting me, Eric. Great to be here. This is going to be so cool. I was telling you before the podcast, um, I actually have the Gupta program. Unfortunately, I have not had a chance to use it, but I'm so into this whole idea of brain retraining. And just kind of like as a background, holistic nootropics, you know, we talk a lot about nootropics. We talk a lot about, you know, I, I like to take it one step further and not just talk about nootropics, but really talk about these underlying health conditions that could really, you know, affect a person's cognition, affect a person's, uh, the way a person thinks. And really what I do is every week I bring on new guests who are specializing in some different kind of field, whether it's functional medicine or they're an entrepreneur putting out some kind of product that will help affect the brain in some way. But you're the first person I've had on here who actually has a program dedicated to essentially rewiring and retraining the brain, which I think is super cool. So I would love for you to maybe kind of give us an introduction to you as to how you came about in this journey to help people retrain their brain. You know, what is your background and ultimately what brought you to this point? Yes. Uh, thank you, Eric. So uh, like many of us who are involved in this space, We've often been through our own challenges, our own suffering, our own illnesses, and then we look to kind of give back. And that's what happened to me. So when I was studying as an undergrad, um, I uh, you know, was at university, so I was living 
you know, burning the candle at both ends. I was partying, but I was working very hard as well. And I went to India and got some kind of stomach bug. And I came back from India. And unfortunately, the stomach bug went, but the after effects lingered and got worse and worse and worse to the point at which I contracted ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, where I couldn't focus on anything, had zero concentration ability. I was exhausted all the time, had to crawl to the bathroom. I mean, I, I describe it to people like, imagine your worst day of flu times 10. That's what it was like, you know, at that particular time. And suddenly there's a brick wall in front of me. You know, I'm a young man. I've got my whole life ahead of me. And yet the doctors are saying, we don't know what causes it. We don't know what you have. There's no cure. You may have it for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that for me spawned a kind of lifelong journey to really understand the brain, understand uh, these types of chronic conditions and find solutions for it. And I, and I kind of made a promise with the universe at that time. I said, if I can just improve my health or even get better, I will dedicate the rest of my life to helping others because millions of people around the world are suffering from these conditions. And so I got myself better using some ad hoc brain retraining tools, then published some medical papers on the subject and then opened a global clinic uh, where we treat lots of people with these conditions now. Yeah, I, lots of people can relate to your story. I don't know to the extreme that they can actually tie it back to, you know, a stomach bug or a virus or something that they caught. But lots of people are dealing with this issue of chronic fatigue, just basically having a hard time getting out of just getting out of bed in the morning, you know, like a lot of times people call it, you know, adrenal fatigue. Um, you know, I think some people are just run down by life, but I don't know if anybody has really put together the idea that there could be some kind of structural wiring in your brain that all of a sudden now has been exposed to something and there's a way to actually fix it without using medications or even supplements. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what's really interesting about this, Eric, is that <clears throat> traditional medicine has always been about what can be measured. Yep. So we can measure hormones in the body. We can measure enzymes. We can measure uh, neurotransmitters, et cetera, because there's a physical chemicals we can measure. So medicine has all, always been about, let's figure out the deficiencies or the overreactions in the body, and let's try to correct them through medication or supplement. And then along in the came brain scans in the last 20 or 30 years where we can suddenly look into the brain and we suddenly realize when we open up this black box that previously wasn't involved in medicine particularly, I believe now that we can trace 60 to 70% of illnesses that someone goes to see their doctor for actually to the brain versus the body itself. And obviously the two are not disconnected. The, the nervous system runs through our brain, our brain stem, and then through the whole body. Um, but this is the exciting new era of medicine for me, that actually, if we can rewire the brain, we've been trying to solve a lot of these illnesses kind of downstream, yeah, in terms of in the physical body. But actually, if we go to the source of these conditions, we may be able to train our brain for the health and happiness. And an analogy that I love to use, which where people really get this, is imagine you're standing on a bridge and you look down over the river and there's people drowning in the river. So you jump in and you save that person. You think, oh, I did a great job. I saved that person. Then you jump in and save another person. And you think, gosh, we've really got to set up a hospital here because there's so many people drowning. So you set up a hospital and you're doing all this great work. But no one's asking the question, who's throwing these people into the river upstream yeah. in the first place? Right? <laughs> Let's go upstream to the brain, the, the kind of central master organ that gives instruction to the rest of the body. Let's go there and actually figure out where the 
challenges, where the brain has got stuck, and let's solve illness from that place. That's that's a great analogy, and I, I I have I think very similar to the way that's actually I mean really why I started this whole channel and this podcast mm-hmm. because you know to me I'm coming from this angle of nootropics and biohacking, and you know I, I I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner. That's you know what I'm certified to do, and um, I got interested in this whole thing because I, I I was just I started to see like people with all of these kind of issues, and what started what I what I really noticed is that. Nootropics and supplements are great, and I think they have their place. But what I what really bothered me is that people started taking a pharmaceutical approach to different supplements. And I would see these conversations online. I would see, I would hear, you know, clients I would talk, I would be working with, you know, they would tell me all of these supplements and different, you know, mind enhancing nootropics that they're using. And I started to realize that. Well, what we're doing is we're we're trying to do the same thing with these natural products that the pharmaceutical industry is convincing us we need to do with like SSRIs and these sorts of things, right? Exactly. And I think definitely going the natural route is better, but to me, it doesn't get to the heart of the problem. You know, what is really causing these quote unquote chemical imbalances? And I think you're right. I think in a lot of uh, situations, it does come back to something that can't be fixed with just a chemical compound, that there is something, there is deeper work that needs to be done. And this kind of brought me to the whole idea of um, like examining trauma, you know, and not just like a lot of people have trauma. I think, I think most people have some level of trauma in their life. There was something, some event, some, Mm. you know, series of events, maybe a habit or ritual or routine that just got embedded in the brain and has caused the person to, um, not just act out emotionally, but cause their body to start manifesting this, um, you know, this kind of, um, you know, everyday, uh, illness, Right. Mm -hmm. And over years, it's like you said, like, okay, as things start to build up, it does become a more serious problem. So what for Mm -hmm. somebody might be, you know, hey, they woke up one day, they they overworked themselves one day. Okay, you could kind of sleep that off. But after years and years and years of letting overwork and stress and compounding issues build up, your body's going to start manifesting all of these diseases and all these all of these physiological problems. Um, So ultimately what you do, you have to, you do have to go back and see what's going on with the brain. Maybe tie that back to, well, why do you feel like you need to overwork? Like what happened earlier in your life that made you feel like you're not working enough or what you're doing is not enough. And maybe you can kind of tie that into where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to uh, just piggybacking on what you just said there. I'd like to kind of just explore why it is we're getting more and more of these conditions, as you you know describe, more and more people suffering from fatigue and anxiety and just general low energy, which is then manifesting into physical illness. See, I, I also always like to start with the biggest question of all: Why are we here? <laughs> right. So we'd love to do a, probably do another podcast on the kind of philosophical aspect of that. But if we look at the scientific aspect, we're here because this body and this brain is designed to ensure survival so that we can pass on our genes to the next generation. Yep. So it has evolved through uh, plants, single cell organisms, invertebrates, vertebrates, mammals, and then human beings, right? We've been on that journey to create this survival machine yep, that can adapt to the environment. And suddenly in the last two to 300 years, what we've done is shifted the evolutionary situation. 
in terms of the way that we live our lives. So suddenly we're not outdoors as much. We're not getting as much sunlight and vitamin D. We um, are living in boxes, sedentary. Yeah. We are eating foods which actually have a lot of toxins, biotoxins, etc., cetera, uh, within them. So we're inflaming our body. We're not sleeping as much as we used to. So all of these things are contributing to what I call a pro-inflammatory bias. Yeah. And that pro-inflammatory bias simply means that our immune system feels under threat from pollution and toxins and all this environment and the stress we live in. So the immune system starts triggering itself unnecessarily in the background. Yeah. And when that happens continually, it starts to drain our energy and drain the rest of the body's resources. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is why fatigue is the modern illness where so many people complain of fatigue. Yeah. Because we live in this pro-inflammatory state. And then what happens is when we combine that with adverse childhood experiences, so that's trauma, uh, abuse, bullying, that primes our nervous system to be even more reactive. So now we've got two reactive systems in the body. Number one is our stress system, our nervous system, fight or flight, which is primed to over-respond to our environment. And then second system is the immune system, which is now over-responding to the environment as well. Yeah, because of this pro-inflammatory bias that we live in. Then along comes a stressor, a real big stressor. Yeah. Um, and that might be a divorce. It might be moving house. It might be some other thing. And that gets combined with some kind of infection. So it might be COVID. It might be flu. It might be a car accident. And suddenly the brain goes into this altered state where it then starts overstimulating our nervous system and overstimulating our immune system. Mm -hmm. So even though the original COVID infection is gone, the flu is gone, the accident isn't here anymore, the pain is gone, the brain errs on the side of caution because the brain is a machine and says, hey, we only just managed to fight off COVID. So let's err on the side of caution. Let's keep stimulating some aspects of the immune system and nervous system just in case that virus is around because we only just managed to survive it in our stressed out state. And that gives us a clue to a lot of these chronic illnesses that even once the original trigger is gone, the body is now stuck in a protective response or overprotective response, which keeps the body in this altered state. And uh, uh, Eric, I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan yourself. You know, I'm not. I'm one of those, I'm one of the rare people that um, I've never even seen an episode. Well, okay. So let's, let's imagine a fairy tale, yeah? just a normal fairy tale. So Eric, you are the king of the castle. Okay. And your kingdom spreads far and wide and you have an army and a navy. So the army is the nervous system. The navy is the immune system. And what suddenly happens is there's a drought kingdom. So everything is a, a lot weaker. So the castle is weaker, the kingdom's weaker, uh, and the army and navy aren't as strong as they normally are. Then in comes an invading army over the hill. And so the army and navy, your army and navy, which are your nervous system and immune system, kick into gear to fight off this invading army. But because they're weak, it takes them a lot longer to fight off this invading army. And they only just manage to fight it off. They fight valiantly. But now they're traumatized because they think, hey, the whole kingdom nearly fell. We were so, we were that close to everything just failing. So they come to you, King Eric, and they say, and the army generals and the navy generals say, Eric, we only just survived that. I need, we need all the resources of the kingdom now. We need all the metal, the grain, the wheat. Everything has to be channeled to the army and navy so that we can ensure survival of this kingdom. So suddenly, 
all the energy you normally had for life is getting channeled into these two systems, which are over-triggering and over-responding. And there's often associated anxiety with that as well, or more stress. And that's what's happening, I think, in a lot of people's bodies in the modern world. We are living in a state of hyper-protection against potential threats in our environment, which could be emotional threats, immunological threats, physiological threats, toxic threats, which is draining the body's energy. And that, in a summary, is, I believe, what is happening for a lot of people. And for some people, it's very mild, you know, just a kind of fatigue, mild burnout, right through to being bedbound. And wherever you are on that spectrum, I believe that by retraining your brain, you can get your full health back. And I 100% agree with you. And I, and I think a lot of the things that I have gotten into over the last couple of years, what, you know, the biohacking stuff specifically, and even just like lifestyle habits, and mm. I mean, diet, you know, like when it comes to diet, like I don't look at diet because like, I don't, I don't look at diet as a thing where I eat healthy and everybody has their own definition of healthy, but my healthy, I don't eat my healthy because I care about losing weight or getting ripped or anything. I look at my diet to specifically keep inflammation down and to make me more resilient. And all the things I do, whether it's like light therapy, low vibrational therapy, you know, meditation, breathing exercise, whatever it is, to me, it's about building resilience, you know? Yeah, it's about calming down, calming down the nervous system. And I think there's a lot of training that has to go into that. But at the end of the day, I'm gonna be exposed to an infection. I'm going to be exposed to bacteria. I'm going to be exposed to a virus. And, you know, when you, when you start to dive into the data on like the gut biome and how the biome is tied to the immune system and how that specifically, basically this whole idea of germ theory, where I think we're slowly starting to get away from that because, you know, like you put me in another person who doesn't have the same diet and lifestyle I do. You have us walk around together in the same places at the same times. We just kind of mimic everything we do. I'm not going to get as sick as that other person because I've been specifically training, you know, my body to be more resilient, my gut biome to be strong, eliminating things like leaky gut, which like you said, then plays into the immune system, which is going to play into, um, inflammation. And now we know that depression and cognitive disorders are directly tied to inflammation. And then of course that keeps your nervous system intact. Your HPA access is kind of running the whole show. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like these things when it comes to trauma, it's like, at the end of the day, when you do have a trauma, you know, when you do have an incident, when you do have to fight off the invading army, how is your body not just going to respond, but then how is it going to react after that whole thing is done? Exactly. And that's the conditioning, the learning. It's like um, you get the on switch and the switch stays stuck in the on position and doesn't mm -hmm. fully switch back off because the system, as you say, is lacking that resilience. It can't just switch on to defensive responses, efficiently deal with a the threat, then switch off. It stays stuck in the on position. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, oh man, it's just so, uh, it's so interesting. Like, you know, the way people react to different things like that, where it's like, you know, granted, you know, I have my own issues with like temperament, you know, we all have those moments where we kind of lose it for a little bit, but like, can you come back? You know, like I hear people talk so much about panic attacks and I'm just as prone to a panic attack as anybody else. But the thing is, is like, you know, I think you have to kind of put yourself through it at different times throughout your life. Like, um, I, I love when Joe Rogan says things like you have to do hard things a lot all the time. Um, for me, 
granted, like I'm not going out and, you know, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu at a high level, but like every morning I take a cold shower mm. and I do that cold shower because first of all, there's all kinds of health benefits with it. It's good for, you know, blood sugar. It's good for weight management. It's a, it's kind of a natural nootropic where it boosts dopamine and norepinephrine, all that stuff. But the real kind of like high level 30,000 foot view reason I do that every morning is because I go, this is going to suck. This is going to suck so much. This is going to be the shittiest thing I probably do all day. Unless I like get hit by a car, hit by a scooter, like that actually happened to me last week. I got hit by a scooter. Um, but you know, no matter what happens, if I get a bad phone call, if I have a bad interaction with somebody, no matter what happened, this is going to be the shittiest thing I do all day, sitting in a cold shower for two or three minutes. And when you do that every day, you build Mm. up resilience. to when those things that do really suck happen, they're kind of not that bad. Mm. And you know, if somebody starts piling things on my plate, like I was telling you, I'm about to start going to medical school. I'm ready for it. Like I'm ready for that pressure. I went through two years of undergrad plus doing this podcast, plus a business, plus having a kid, plus all these things, things just constantly getting stacked on my plate. I Mm. trained myself for years with these cold showers and meditation, these sort, but to really build a resilience in my body so that as the stress comes, my body goes, okay, we put that here. We put that here. We put that here. We don't go, Oh my God, so much stuff. What do I do now? Mm. Yeah. It's the ability to stay centered in the storm. It's that that kind of resilience, isn't it? That ups and downs will come, challenges will become your way. But do we lose it or do we stay calm and centered? And yeah. that is the real, the real gift, as you say, of meditation, of sleeping well, of exercising, of having a good diet. All of these things can contribute to that um, kind of inner resilience for sure. And where do you think genetics fit into this? Because, you know, there's all these things with like, for instance, the COMT gene, right? That influences how dopamine is produced. And you have people who have fast COMT genes where they're, they're metabolizing COMT real fast. So they, they, and I hope I'm saying this right. I'm not a genetics expert, but you know, if they have a fast COMT gene, they're constantly in need of some kind of exciting stimulus. And this Mm. is why people start kind of coming to the nootropic side and looking for things like N-acetyl-L-tyrosine, um, you know, or something that's going to really stimulate the production of dopamine. You see it with serotonin, you see it with norepinephrine, um, the uh, dopamine beta hydroxylase enzyme in the brain. If it's, if it's really quick, you know, these people aren't holding on for these happy neurotransmitters for so long. And this can kind of contribute to a lot of anxiety, depression, worry, which might then come back and manifest into some of these more physical conditions you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, the, the model that we use is, <clears throat> is that our genes are not our destiny. Yeah. So we may well have certain, unless there's a, a kind of pure illness that's purely genetic, we will have these tendencies. And obviously we may have a genetic uh, disposition or inheritance, but then it's also about how those genes are expressed. Yeah. And our lifestyle and our thoughts all impact on how these genes are actually expressed as well. So I believe that whilst these things may act on it and have an influence It simply means that we have to try all the more harder to use holistic approaches to calm and tame the brain in whatever way or a happier, healthier brain. So I think for us, um, we we talk about this MEND protocol, right? So M-E-N-D. So M stands for mind. If we are meditating and keeping ourselves centered and doing lots of different techniques that can help us with resilience, that's going to support whatever genetic inheritance we may have. E for exercise, N for nighttime routine. So that's your sleep, getting the good sleep. And then D for diet, what we call the four pillars of health. And so I think that if people invest in that all the more deeper, if they know they have that particular genetic imprint, then I think that can support them in any situation. That's great. Now, can you talk a little bit about 
amygdala retraining? What does that mean? And how does one go about that? You know, what, what kind of things are you doing? Are you helping people with to really, because, you know, I look at that or somebody might look at that and go, yes, that's what I need, but you don't really know what that means. Like, uh, maybe you could explain like how that works and how your program specifically um, approaches that. Yes. So there are two brain structures that we focus on and we believe we are retraining based upon a lot of the neurological research, but also some animal studies as well. So amygdala, there's two of them and they sit behind our eyes and many people have heard of them. There's two brain structures that essentially are our emotional centers and our danger centers. So when we perceive threat and traditionally that's emotional threat, then our amygdala is stinted to provide information to the rest of the brain to put us into fight or flight mode or defensive mode, together, together with a brain structure called the periaqueductal gray in the brainstem. Now, traditionally that's been associated with emotional reactions, but now they've started realizing that the amygdala is involved in pain responses and immune responses because the brain doesn't differentiate between the two, like we do in modern medicine. So in, you go to a hospital, you've got a psychology department over here, immunology department over here. It's a, everything's very separate, but that's not the way the body and the brain work. It works from a holistic place. So the same brain structures responsible for emotional threats are also there at physical threats uh, as well, which is very interesting. So we believe that that structure, the amygdala, um, because it gets overstimulated, it can no longer... Um, play one of its roles, which is actually not only to inform the brain of danger, but to ramp down and dampen down emotional defensive responses and physiological defensive responses. So retraining the amygdala is really about training the entire brain to calm down this over-response and then specifically the amygdala's over-response. The insula is a brain structure that sits between the cortex and the limbic system. And its role is to take in all incoming data, from the body, autonomic systems, immune systems, process that information, and then uh, trigger the immune system or nervous system or autonomic responses to essentially ensure survival, ensure homeostasis. And what's really interesting about the, some very recent research just in the last year or so, um, they took rats and they were able to create inflammatory bowel disease in the, in the gut, right? And uh, they then tested the signature of that response in the insular part of the brain. Yeah. Then they stopped creating this inflammatory bowel disease in the rats, and they just stimulated the insula, the electrical signature in the insula. They were able to create exactly the same inflammatory response in the gut just through triggering this in the insula. And this is the first time, it's, it's always theoretical, and we had it in our papers for 13, 14 years, but it's the first time it's been demonstrated that peripheral immune responses as a signature get stored in the brain ready for future responses, yeah, as protective responses, which makes sense, right? There has to be a central depository of the intelligence of how to protect the body. And so we believe that we're retraining that part of the brain, the insula, to no longer be triggering these inflammatory responses in the body and these over-defensive responses. So that's why we call it amygdala and insula retraining as a summary. Yeah, this is so, oh my God, this is so interesting and so cool. Um, because I I look at people, I look at people differently now that I've been in this world. I've done so many of these podcasts now with, you know, people like yourself, gut specific doctors, people who know a lot about gut health, the gut brain axis. This is essentially what changed my life. This is what got me into the whole thing, which was healing my gut 
for whatever that's worth, but really like optimizing my gut health, getting it back on track. Um, but now I look at people and I go, how many people are walking around every day with a serious gut condition like IBD, IBS, um, SIBO, Crohn's, colitis, um, whatever it is, right? Some kind of diverticulitis, some kind of inflammation of the gut that's throwing off their whole thing. And from what you're telling me is that there's a part of the brain that we, we know through the vagus nerve, the gut communicates directly to the brain. So now what I'm hearing is that, okay, well, there is a part of the brain now that can, that communicates directly with the gut and they're working. It's, it's a two, it's a two way highway, right? The gut goes up, the brain goes down. Mm -hmm. There's part of the brain that could be making IBS itself. You know, like I look at IBS, I go, well, IBS is because of the diet or because of the lifestyle, because of stress, you know, like we were talking about earlier, toxic food, you know, it's also a lot of people don't make enough hydrochloric acid. So they're not properly breaking down food enough. It goes to the gut, it causes all these problems, um, dysbiosis, right? Um, so I always looked at it like the brain, the gut is what is making the brain. But what you're saying is, well, you have found through your research that the brain is also making the gut. Yes. And this is where the holistic approach comes in because the two are playing a game of tennis. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the gut uh, for, let's say, bad foods, toxins, etc., has a maladaptive response and is then triggering this inflammation and informing the brain that something is wrong. It may even be triggering inflammation throughout the body and even into the brain, which then tells the brain that something is wrong in the gut and therefore it needs to trigger and store that inflammatory response and trigger more of that inflammatory response in the gut. The gut then receives that information and you can see a game of tennis starts going on where the brain and the, the gut are constantly hitting the ball harder and harder, trying to defend the system from whatever threats it perceives. And what I'm saying is that the holistic approach is we do both. We actually have an anti-inflammatory diet and all the anti-inflammatory supplements that can support healing in the gut and at the same time train the brain. Because what I see time and time again, and I don't know if you've seen this in your practice, is you can use all kinds of brilliant things to heal the gut. And someone goes away and says, hey, I've healed my SIBO, I've healed this, you know, I feel great, everything's good. But the moment they have another stressful situation in their lives, mm-hmm. bang, it comes back. And the things that they were doing before no longer seem to have such a, an impact. And that can be very puzzling for nutritionists and naturopaths. And the reason is, is that there is an, there's an interaction going on. When you heal the gut, the messaging goes to the brain that, hey, things are better now. You don't need to keep kicking off this response. So the brain says, okay, I don't need to kick off the response. It then heals the gut. So it's not just through the mechanism of um, the physical healing in the gut's level. It's the communication that then goes up to the brain. Now that what happens is when a new stressful situation comes, the brain then re-stimulates those immune responses and stress responses even more than it did before, causing that chain reaction and that interaction. And therefore, the holistic approach is let's heal the gut, but also let's train the brain to, to be calm, more centered, and not have these over-responses environments. Oh, man, that is, that is so wicked. It's so wicked the way that the brain and the gut work with each other. Um, I was listening to this podcast, the Peter Atiyah, I don't know if you uh, know this guy, um, one of the biggest health podcasts uh, on iTunes. And he, he had this doctor on recently, the guy who wrote, I don't know his name, but he wrote the book, The Second Brain, and it's all about the gut. And yeah. the gut is um, is considered outside the body. So the gut is like its own organ that is not even actually technically 
a part of your body. And of course we know like it's home to the microbiome. It hosts what trillions of bacteria cells. And we just barely started to understand these bacteria cells, but they've done this research where because the gut actually has these neurons on it um, that they, I think they, he said they did these studies with these rats and they removed the brain and they only kept the gut and the, the brain or the gut was able to actually control like different motor responses within the organism. I might not be saying that correctly, but the idea was basically that the gut is a brain. It like, we don't realize it, but it is a brain. So when you say there is a tennis match going on between the gut and the brain, they're both equally controlling so much of what you do, especially when you consider the fact that most of your serotonin, dopamine, um, and acetylcholine is made and GABA is made in your gut. Um, I almost feel like the gut is probably running more of the show than the brain is in a way. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing for research, isn't it? To see, to kind of understand, uh, you know, where is the action? as it were, in terms of where is the core conditioning. And, and you know, I, I, what I find really interesting is I have lots of patients have this similar response where let's say we're in our normal environment, we're stressed, we're working hard, right? Our gut's more sensitive, right? And we find that, um, you know, you can't eat bad foods as much or, you know, this you have more of react reactivity to the environment around you. And then suddenly you go on holiday, right? And you've got, you're stress-free, Suddenly, you can eat all kinds of rubbish, right? Drink all kinds of nonsense. And you feel perfectly healthy and loads of energy and whatever, because what's happening is stress and overstimulation of the nervous system, I believe, makes your gut more sensitive and more prone to, to be more reactive to what's being put in there, essentially. When you calm the overall reactivity of the brain and you are more in a calm, centered state, the resilience naturally goes up and naturally um, is stronger and you have less of an inflammatory response. And I believe the modern disease is that in the brain, our stress systems have got wired together with our immune systems. So we know that neurons that fire together wire together. So when we're stressed and we're not in our relaxed state, we are constantly triggering this over-inflammatory response in the gut, which is keeping us in this altered state, causing all the downstream effects of IBD, IBS, cyber. But when we are able to, in our day-to-day -day lives, be less stimulated, so our stress systems are kept under control, which I think is the, the, the core, core learning that we all need to learn as human beings and as children. When we're able to do that, we are able to calm down the inflammatory responses and be healthier and more resilient to inevitable bad food and toxins that we're going to be ingesting, pollution that we're going to be ingesting. And therefore, I, from, from my research, I still feel that the, the core of it is if you can train those two structures, the amygdala and insula, that we are no longer in danger, that, that information then gets conveyed to the gut and the gut says, oh, thank God, I can now switch off these sensitivity and inflammatory responses that I've been engaging in, in an oversensitive way, because now I'm getting the instruction that we are safe, that we are no longer in danger. And that's mm -hmm. also why I believe that people who have ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences, they are three to four times more likely to get chronic conditions when they're older than people who've never had an ACE. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you were talking, I was, I just kept thinking, cause you, you use the analogy of a tennis match. I would actually take it one step further. It almost seems like, um, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. 
you know, mm-hmm. it almost seems like they're, they're fighting lightsabers and it's like Luke Skywalker's the brain, Darth Vader's the gut. And for most of your day, the gut is controlling. It's controlling so much of your subconscious, right? Do you like the gut feeling? I have it like, I, I feel it in my gut. This is a bad idea. Um, stick to your gut, listen to your gut, all that. But at the end of the day, your brain can overpower all of that stuff coming from the gut. So at the end of the day, your brain is the one making the executive decisions on how you're going to feel. And this is why your program and meditation and breathing exercises are so powerful because you can really very quickly overpower all of this other stuff. You just have to have the right method essentially to put into your brain what needs to go in there so it can kind of tamper down all of that stress reaction and your gut will very also quickly probably get back online at least like the the more kind of um reactive parts of it like your hydrochloric acid the stuff that's directly tied to the nervous system yes and eric there's something really important here the reason why our gut is more prone to reactivity and sensitivity is because it's the main organ that ingests extraneous material. Yeah. So our skin still has that. We still have the pores. We have a certain level of protection. But the gut is literally taking in things that could be dangerous in our environment. And therefore, the gut has to have that extra layer of sensitivity and protection because one false move or one uh, protective mechanism that's not triggered to fight off a toxin you've ingested in your gut could be the difference between life or death. So the gut is pre-programmed for sensitivity and defensiveness. And because we live in this pro-inflammatory environment, as I said, pollution being a big thing, the toxins of food, it's now um, being constantly defensively triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. We could, we could go on about that because I think the gut is just, oh, it's such an interesting topic and um, you seem to know a lot about it. But I do want to kind of bring back the brain and this other interesting concept that you work with, which is neuroplasticity. Um, you know, I love the idea of neuroplasticity. You know, I love the idea that our brains are plastic and we can always, we can always learn new things. Um, but it's, it's harder as you get older, you know, it, it's like, it seems to be much more difficult as you become like when you're younger, it's like, you just get a bunch of stuff thrown at you and you kind of pick and choose and you kind of bounce around to different things. But as you're older and you've built in these, these habits and these routines and these rituals, it gets harder and harder to break, but it can be done. So, um, let's talk a little bit about neuroplasticity and, and how you approach that with your program. Sure. So neuroplasticity, as you say, is this idea that our brains are much more flexible and rewirable than previously thought. So we, we used to think, right, you have your first five or 10 years of life that determines, you know, your bodily reactions, your personality, et cetera. And then after that, it's pretty much fixed and there's not much you can do about it. But recent studies have shown that actually our brain is constantly rewiring itself and it's uh, much more flexible and pliable if we can find the right key to the right lock to unlock these kind of secrets. So in our program, we've spent the last 20 years refining and refining these techniques, and they are techniques of change. So they're quite agnostic techniques in the sense the Gupta program doesn't care what it is you're trying to change. It just gives you the tools and the strategies to be able to shift something. And so what we're talking about shifting here are survival instincts. So we believe that ME, fibromyalgia, mold illness, and long COVID, they are programmed defense mechanisms, protection mechanisms, yeah, probably in the insula. And so we've devised a way in which 
normally these are not within our control, but actually through regular retraining, training the brain to recognize those danger signals that are coming even from the gut or the body, recognize them and retrain them again and again and again through repetition. Eventually, the brain gets the message that we're no longer in danger and switches off the fight or flight responses and the immune responses. And this is very different to existing cognitive behavioral therapy or other types of therapies. And the way we describe it is learning to drive a car. Right? So in your first driving lesson, if it was a cognitive approach or even cognitive behavioral, you'd be thinking, right, I'm not going to have any negative thoughts about this. I'm going to focus on the positive. I'm going to be able to do this, etc. But that's not going to help you learn to drive the car. What you actually need to do is train your nervous system through repetition. So you move the steering wheel, the the gear shift, as you guys say, the gas, the brake pedal, and you've got to train yourself till eventually you can drive a car whilst eating a sandwich and listening to music and daydreaming because it's all become automated in your unconscious system. So in the same way, this overreactivity has got programmed into the unconscious brain as a, as a right thing to do. We now need to mm. detrain it from that response and instead inform the brain that we're not in the state of having COVID or having that accident. We are now safe and we can switch off these survival instincts and survival responses. And that can go anything from um, physical illnesses, which is what we specialize in, right through to trauma, right through to anxiety, right through to phobias. People can use this program for a whole range of different things. And what's really interesting is we never, we weren't even aware of this, but people with Alzheimer's and people with MS have been using our program. And anecdotally, they've been reversing their symptoms which has been absolutely fascinating to me. So in autoimmune conditions, it may be a similar thing. You go through a stressful period in your life, your brain makes a decision to start using the immune system to attack certain parts of your body. And then it becomes neurodegenerative or degenerative in general. How can we train the brain to no longer be in that state of hypervigilance and overstimulation, telling it we're no longer in danger? And that's what people have been using it for these neurodegenerative diseases as well. And I find it so interesting that you you kind of put mold and long COVID in there because, you know, you think of long COVID and you think like, OK, I had COVID. And now I think most people think long COVID is this thing where it's like, well, COVID's just hanging around in the body and it's causing these problems. Um, and the same thing with mold, you know, it's like, uh, cause I've had many conversations about mold. I've, I've dove into, I'm not a mold expert by any means, but it sounds like mold is a thing too, where it's like, you're, as long as you're constantly exposed to mold, your body's going to react in this way to fight the mold. But it almost sounds like what you're saying is you had COVID your body through these different mechanisms in your brain that are, that work within the, uh, that work alongside the immune system said, well, now we know how to fight COVID, but we're not going to forget how to fight COVID. In fact, we're going to fight COVID every single day, even exactly. though COVID is gone. Mm -hmm. Um, it's almost like PTSD your brain, your brain has where it's like, I have to fight COVID every day and the COVID's gone and there's no and what you're saying is that your program is going to teach your brain to say, hey, 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 little buddy, come on over here. COVID's not here anymore. We can mm -hmm. relax. We can sit down. We could have some tea. We could mm -hmm. chill. We could watch two and a half, uh, two and a half men. Yeah. <laughs> and we could, you know, we could, we could relax because COVID's not here. We don't got to do that anymore. And the brain just wants to continually fight COVID. Exactly. Well, as a Brit, I definitely want to have a cup of tea uh, with my, with my amygdala for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Eric, that, this, there's a precedent for this type of response, which is PTSD. Now, PTSD can occur in the presence of, let's say, someone being in a war zone, 
As far as your brain and body is concerned, fighting off COVID is like being in a war zone. It's even more threatening because you've got this, this, this pathogen in your body attacking you, essentially, right? So what happens is it fights it off, but in 10 to 20% of patients, the response is so intense, even if you don't have, even if you have mild symptoms, the brain makes a decision in that moment that I need to overprotect, err on the side of the caution, because the brain cares more about your survival than your well-being. The brain says, okay, what's the big deal overstimulating the immune system? As long as we survive, that's what matters. We can still make babies and pass on our genes to the next generation if we have an overstimulated immune system, but it's, uh, that means we survive. And the other precedent for this, which is really interesting, is if you look at COVID, people are not dying of COVID. People are dying from the body's own over-inflammatory response in response to COVID. So, that, so it shows you the precedent there that once again, these pathogens come into our body, but it, the, how our body responds to it is the key factor, which even ensures our survival or our well-being. So we, we can actually see either the body over-responds to COVID, causes an over-inflammatory response, and people pass away from that. They can no longer breathe. Or even once the COVID is gone, the body stays in this hyperactive state. And where mold fits in, um, in neurology, uh, neurobiology, we talk about this idea of differential activation. A beautiful phrase, <laughs> differential activation. Essentially what it means is one day you were stressed, you encountered a place which had loads of mold. We'll call that 100% mold. And your body naturally created a defensive allergic response to that mold because there are mold spores coming into your body. That's dangerous. The brain in that moment, and I believe we're all exposed to that at some point in our lives, but for 5% of people or 10% of people, whatever it is, the brain creates this differential activation response, which essentially says, I need to defend against mold because whew, that was close. So now if I detect 5% of the mold I previously experienced, I must create a defensive response. And that's what differential activation is, is activating the same defensive system, but to a much smaller stimulus. And that's then what's happening in mold illness, food sensitivities, electrical sensitivities. The nervous system gets trained to over-respond to ensure survival. Very, very kind of simple. And that's what I believe is the link with mold illness. Now, the difference between long COVID and mold illness is the long COVID, the stimulus is symptoms in the body. So just that general fatigue, tiredness, inflammation becomes a trigger to the brain. The brain says, wow, we might still be in danger from the virus, trigger more immune and defense response, which then creates more of the inflammation in the body and more of the stimulation, which loops back to a hypervigilant brain, causing the vicious cycle. In mold illness, the trigger is external. In food sensitivities, the, the triggers are external in terms of the food in the gut. And the, the, the brain has made a decision that those foods are dangerous or that mold is dangerous, even 5% of it, I must re-trigger an allergic reaction. And that I believe is the basis of these uh, why some one person has an allergy or one person doesn't. Why does one person have hay fever and one person doesn't? We've even had anecdotally people being able to calm down their hay fever using our program because it's the same thing. If 100 people in a room are not responding in the same way to the same thing, then it must be our individual programming that is causing this overreaction. And then to tie it back to the, the programming part, it's like, well, you as a person are prone to react that way if you get COVID or if you have mold or if 
if you're um, exposed to some sort of pathogen or if you're exposed to some sort of food, you're going out upstream, like in your original example of the hospital and the stream and um, who's throwing these people in the stream, right? So like before you even get COVID, before you even expose to mold, before you even expose to what other pathogen bacteria, there is that wiring in your brain then that says, well, when this happens, we're going to respond like that and we're going to keep responding like that. So yeah. why does that happen? Why does the, why is the brain wired like that? So this brings us full circle to what we talked about earlier, the adverse childhood experiences. So what happens is the factory setting of our amygdala is influenced by many things, our reactivity to our environment. So the first factor is how stressed was your mother during pregnancy? Mm. How stressful was the actual birth experience? Because that imprints on the amygdala. How stressful was the first few years of life when you're learning bonding with the mother and father, especially the mother? How traumatic were the experiences up to the age of 10 or 12 in terms of your nurture that you were given. That then decides the factory setting of your amygdala and your adverse childhood experiences. And just like I said earlier, the brain doesn't differentiate between physiological, emotional, or immunological threats. Yeah. So what happens is if your amygdala and insular factory setting is higher, then when COVID does come along or when mold comes along, the triggering of that sensitivity reaction is far greater and gives you a far higher chance of then developing a long-term condition. And this is, this is obviously our, our hypothesis of how ACEs connect to uh, you know, chronic conditions. And the core of it, uh, what it really comes down to is a very beautiful piece of brain neurology, which simply says, when our amygdala is hyperstimulated, it can learn new defensive responses to otherwise neutral events. Yeah. And so when COVID comes along, the, our immune system is more on a hair trigger. It fights harder to fight this particular virus off. But when we come back to balance, the brain and the amygdala has learned a new defensive response, which is symptoms in the body and says, oh, these symptoms in the body indicate that maybe COVID is still here. Same with mold. Then with pain. So we haven't even talked about pain, but this hypothesis applies to pain as well, that you had a painful incident at one point, then all the pain nerves at the peripheral and the centralized level become hypersensitive and you detect pain. The brain then triggers inflammation in that part of the body and round and round we go in another vicious cycle. Oh my God, this is so crazy, man. Because let me tell you, like, now that I have a kid, my, my baby is, um, you know, he's, he's still under a year old. He's six months old, you know? And I now think about this all the time. Like I look at all of this stuff completely differently now that I have a kid, because now I'm starting to see exactly what you're talking about. I'm starting to see where these issues and people come from, because you have to be so precise <laughs> with every little thing with a kid. I mean, you're talking about from the way you hold the kid to the people you keep them around, to the things you feed them, to the way you, you know, you pick them up, you put them down. Some people, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a perfect parent by any means. I'm still learning. It's a very difficult process, but I, I'm starting to figure out like, okay, you have to be, I mean, you have to treat this on like a level 11 out of 10, as far as how gentle you're going to be with a baby, because any wrong thing, you never know like where that can go, like what you could damage, what you could break, what you could expose the kid to. And I look at now people differently. Like, again, I hear Joe Rogan say like adults are just babies that grew up. And I kind of look at the same thing because I see the ways that a lot of parents are with their kids. And I just look at like the formula 
that's out there, the things they put into child formula and, you know, um, even breastfeeding moms who have a very bad diet or who have bad habits, like they smoke, they drink, the baby's taking all that in. I read this book, um, all about like, uh, you know, like phthalates and plastics, you know, that's heavy in people's diets. The baby takes that in through the breast milk glyphosate that goes in, that goes into the baby's uh, breast milk, the mold exposure that goes in, that goes with the baby's breast. So you're talking about infants getting exposed to all of these hardcore chemicals, which is going to physiologically affect their body, their immune system, et cetera, et cetera, their, their hormone, their endocrine system. But then man, let me give you this, this thing, I, this example. So, um, we live right by the beach, as you can tell from the zoom call, we live right by the beach and we go to the beach this one day. We, um, uh, we didn't bring our baby out with us cause we were kind of nervous. Like how do we bring a baby to the beach, you know? Well, there's this girl, she's a young girl. She's probably, she could be any older than 25. She's got a baby. She's with her friends. The baby's in a car seat on the beach, very close to the water, by the way, like not like mm. up shore on the beach, but like pretty close to the water, closer than I would ever put my baby. Um, and it was in a car seat. The mom was drinking. She was drinking cocktail. She's in the water with her friends. The baby is by itself in the car seat next to a stereo that is blasting at like a 10. And the baby's right here. The stereo is right here. So all I could think is like, what is going on in that baby's brain, immune system, the whole body? And this isn't the first time that's happened. This is probably a thing that's normal for the baby. The baby probably grows up in a house where there's just a lot of loud volume music, maybe screaming. You know, you if you put a baby around screaming parents, parents scream all the time, parents fight. The baby's internalizing that all the time. And like you said, you talk about adverse childhood events. It could just be the way the baby was raised. You know, you put in some crappy formula, you put in some crappy breast milk, you put in maybe a little shaking here and there, maybe, you know, you're driving in the car uh, and the baby's not tied in, strapped in all the way. Their neck's kind of jiggling around a lot. You're talking about like low level brain damage. Yeah. When you start to grow up and then you start getting exposed to these different stimuli, you better believe there's going to be some kind of adverse um, reactions in the body that are now affecting you as an adult, leading to your IBD, leading to maybe some other, you know, worse traumatic condition. So sure. I think and, about and this all the time now. Absolutely. And I think the good news is that there are things that can offset it, um, obviously, as well. And I'm not a child rearing expert, but certainly, you know, there's evidence around holding, you know, obviously a baby skin to skin, making it feel loved, etc., which can offset some of the impacts that it may have on the amygdala. So if a child feels regularly nurtured, looked after, loved, it can offset some of that some of the damaging aspects of this. And then so, something else controversial that I'm going to say, well, I don't know how controversial this is, but certainly from my research, exposing children and babies to screens, so the iPad, et cetera, has a massive impact on their brain structure that will be with them for life, their dopamine systems, et cetera. So I'd really encourage parents to hold off for as long as possible when it comes to screens, especially with babies. And you know, for what it's worth, the who for all of their faults actually um, states that you're not supposed to let a child see a screen until they're two years old. Yeah. So, you know, whatever, whatever you think about the who I have my own thoughts about them, but I do a hundred percent agree with that. It's very difficult nowadays to keep your baby a hundred percent away from a screen, but like mm. I'm talking like 95 to 99% of the time, yeah. I'm very, very hardcore with that. You know, like there's times with my baby, 
society where, um, you know, my parents, they're in the States, I'm in Puerto Rico, they want to see the baby and I'll have the, I'll have them in front of the screen for like a, a couple minutes, whatever. And even I feel really bad about that, but I haven't watched TV in my house with the baby because I don't want him seeing the screen. I try not to keep him around the computer. It's just, it's so difficult, but I don't know what the mechanism is. All I know is that instinctually, I don't think it can be good when a child is exposed to that much screen time, just for their eye health alone. But yeah. then you but have there's, I mean, there's many there's many mechanisms. So I think there's the eye health. There's also uh, kind of physical coordination. So normally babies are playing with physical things to in, the hand-eye coordination and the the physiological aspects of the body, whereas just staring at a screen no longer employs that. And then third, I think most importantly, is stimulation. So when a baby sees a screen, the level of stimulation is always going to be far higher than normal life, right? That's why teenagers love to stare at their screens because talking to their parents or doing anything in life is not as interesting. It's not as stimulating. And so the brain's dopamine system becomes overstimulated and therefore underperforms. So as they get older in life, it becomes harder and harder to, uh, to motivate, to do this. And, and they're seeing this now in, um, in brain scans as well. So I think absolutely it's, it's an important part of the me- or contributing factor to what we're seeing in terms of modern stress levels. And I see it in terms of since we started having social media on our mobile phones, you see the graph of that, and then you see the graph of anxiety, depression, et cetera. They, all, they go up exactly at the same time. And that is because our nervous system isn't getting, a re- isn't getting any rest anymore. So before, look, if we want to go on social media, we have to boot up our laptop or whatever, and it take time. So we would have less engagement with screens. But now the engagement with screens is pretty much, you know, all throughout the day. The nervous system never gets a rest. We never get to have downtime. We never process our emotions because the moment we have a difficult emotion, we use screens as a distraction. And that is contributing to this further over-inflammatory response, anxiety and depression, you know, skyrocketing in populations is because of screens, uh, in my view. So I think that is also something that society has to tackle and deal with. And I think it's the, the the content on the screen itself. You know, like if you're watching a horror movie, for instance, your body is going to physically react in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. I would even say, like with the social media thing. I think there's just so much keeping up with the Joneses going on on these social media things. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is its own stressor or like some kind of sensationalized news story. And they're there every single day that the news outlets put out because they know you're going to stay on their site longer. They know you're going to click on their ads more likely. Um, And so they're just delivering you this constant nervous system, stimulating stress, inducing information that you're getting a double whammy of I is watching the screen. Brain is reacting to stressful stimuli content on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I think, you know, all of us are probably in some point in our lives going to need some type of brain retraining to reset the brain back to its uh, kind of homeostasis, back to its calm, relaxed state. And for me, I, you know, I really think you know, getting to that state, whether it's you use meditation, exercise, a brain retraining, whatever tool, you know, makes you feel happier and healthier and calmer, double it, <laughs> whatever it is that anyone's mm-hmm. doing in life, double it, because that's what we're going to need to offset our modern way of living. And where does meditation fit into all this? We haven't talked, we've, we've been talking about like this really geeky high level brain stuff, but you know, mm. meditation, where, where does that come in? Cause I, I love meditation. I know meditation is the popularity of it's been taken off. So, so is that a thing that you, you know, that's a part of your program that you do that you Absolutely. believe in? 
Yeah. So in the Gupta program, so we people use the braid retraining for mental, physical, emotional conditions that are chronic. Yeah. The doctor has said, hey, nothing else we can do for you. And there's three R's of the Gupta program. So the first R is retraining the brain. So that's where you're retraining specific brain responses to your environment or your internal state. The second R of the Gupta program, which is a supportive part, is relaxing the nervous system. So that's meditation, breathing, uh, getting good sleep, the anti-inflammatory diet, getting out into sun and nature and getting your, your light therapy. All of those things are relaxing the nervous system, which supports neuroplasticity. So our brain is more rewirable when we put those things into place. And the third R of the Gupta program, which is often neglected in modern medicine, is re-engaging with joy. When we've got difficulties in our life or we're going through traumatic times or illness, we sometimes think we can't be happy or smiley or jokey or enjoy the small pleasures of life. And re-engaging with joy says, actually, when we connect to our inner joy and we choose to be happier, we give people lots of ways of being able to do that, that boosts our immune system and resets the nervous system and removes that danger component. So when we put all of these three things together, three R's, that's what makes the most powerful effect. And we can get people better from long COVID within weeks. Sometimes it takes you know, a few months, but generally in weeks and months, we're getting people better from long COVID. And we've just done a study on long COVID as well. So we think that um, when you find the right key to the right lock, when you unlock your brain, you, as you say, it's kind of almost neurohacking. When you know how to target specific responses, then you can bring it back to balance. And when we, when we know we have that control, it's incredibly empowering as well. Yeah, I love it. That's such a great place to kind of um, wind things down here because um, yeah, that, that really at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. Just the idea of, of, um, of making joy almost a habit in your life, like rediscovering joy. We don't do that enough. There's just too much pressure. We, we put too much pressure on ourselves. You know, like we, we tend to overcomplicate these things with, again, in my line, you know, nootropics and biohacking and what is like the latest and greatest thing I can do. But at the end of the day, like, what are the things that make you happy? And if you do enough of that, your nerve, you're going to calm your nervous system. You're going to balance your neurotransmitters. You're going to get out of life what life is all about. You know, they they always say, I hear this thing all the time where it's like they they talk to people on their deathbeds and they say, like, you know, what is the thing, the one thing that you could have done differently in your life? And it would have been, you know, and they're talking about like people who had a lot of success in their careers, people who did a lot of amazing things. They go, I wish I could have spent more time around loved ones. And that just makes you think, like, yeah this is these the simple things about the joy, whatever your joy is, do more of that. And for a lot of people, you know, meditation fits right in there because you gotta, you gotta make your brain get to that place of joy where you can have, you don't need to earn joy. You can just have it anytime you exactly. want. It's always available. Exactly. It's an absolute cool thing. If there's one gift I want to give to society, it's just meditate, 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 right? Get used to it, make it a daily practice. It will change your life and it will do all of these great things for your brain as well. I 100% believe it. Well, Ashok, this has been a, just such a fun conversation. I know we could do at least another hour here, um, but I want to be respectful of your time, my time, and the viewer's time. So I know if a listener or viewer has made it this far, then they're definitely going to be interested in learning more about you, learning more about your program. Where would you send somebody online to, to discover more about you and the Gupta program? Sure. So they can come to our website, which is guptaprogram.com. That's G-U-P-T-A guptaprogram.com. And there they can sign up for a free 28-day trial. 
which means they can sample the videos, look at the audios, etc., see if this is a program that's right for them, whatever condition they may have. And then they can take the program. And it's a one year, it's, well, it's a minimum six month program in terms of us not being complacent because some people get better within weeks, but we say, look, keep going, don't get complacent. Um, and until we have the large scale phase three trials, uh, we offer a one year money back guarantee on the entire treatment protocol. So we do already have randomized controlled trials, which have been smaller pilot studies showing that the program is effective for MECFS, fibromyalgia and long COVID. But we are, um, until we get phase three trials with hundreds of patients, uh, we offer that one year money back guarantee. So people have got nothing to lose by giving it a go and see how it ha can help. Yeah. You got nothing to lose. So try it. If you got some, some extra time, I mean, just spend, spend a couple minutes a day watching mm -hmm. these videos, going through it. You know, like I said, if you've made it this far in the program, then you, you probably know there's going to be some kind of value you're going to get out of it. So use some of your time for some, for some self, some self, you know, wellness some self-treatment dive into the Gupta program. I think, uh, again, you got nothing to lose and if you hate it, send it back, but I don't think you're going to do that. So, um, Ashok, again, thank you so much for joining us today on the holistic nootropics podcast listener viewer. If you enjoyed this, make sure you subscribe, head on over to Apple podcasts, the podcast, a five-star review. And if you got some time and you like, Hey, I'm going to go check out the Gupta program, check out the Gupta program, but also spend some time going through the old holistic nootropics library on, on YouTube and over on your favorite podcast player and head on over to holisticnootropics.com for all things nootropics, biohacking and nutrition until next time, everybody. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain boosting info, in depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.